wasn't going to be coming back the next time, but he's still here, so I'm, it, it makes me feel good. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. So, no, uh, my dad and my brother were out of town for two weeks, and Mr. Allen, our crew here, and so uh, they got back late, so he said, why don't you go ahead and keep going this weekend. So I have the privilege again to uh, preach this morning. And we're going to be getting back into Corinthians. Um, we, last two weeks we talked about worship. And so um, if you didn't hear those and read those, I would encourage you to do that. But this morning we're going to be getting back into 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Chapter 8. Before we read it, I want to give you a bit of an introduction. I want to make sure you are equipped with the proper lenses to see this text as relevant. This is one of those places um, where Paul addresses a particular cultural issue um, that the Corinthians, like many Christians in their day, were facing, and it revolved around food that had been offered to idols. So the problem really has two layers that Paul is dealing with, and he will continue to deal with in the next couple chapters. The first layer was whether it was acceptable for a Christian to eat the food itself that had been offered to an idol. And the second layer of the problem, which you'll see dealt with more in chapter 10, um, was whether it was acceptable for Christians to participate in the pagan festivals or the ceremonies um, where this food was being offered. So those are kind of the two layers, and I know it sounds like, well, why, why aren't we just skipping that then? Um, the first layer is not a widespread problem, really, in our modern culture. I don't think they have, you know, the golden idol of Ronald in the back of McDonald's that all our food passes before. It's not really a widespread issue in our culture today. Um, but the second layer of the issue, it, it's probably not a direct parallel for us today, um, but it hits a lot closer to home, and it'd be something kind of like, it'd be something like me saying, I want to go to a strip club just for the cheap buffet. I want to I go um, to a brothel just for a shoulder massage. Kind of like that. Um, part of what these Corinthians were essentially asking is something maybe some of us have asked in here. Is it okay for me to go to Hooters just for the wings? Kind of like that. That's kind of what we're dealing with in chapter 8. And so that being said, because... Um, because this doesn't present itself today as a pressing moral issue, like maybe homosexuality or abortion would in our culture, um, this doesn't mean that his exhortation isn't relevant for us. It is relevant for us. And the, because the problem that he gets to, he goes beyond the surface, and the problem that he gets to is the issue of Christians' rights and brotherly love. Christians' rights and brotherly love. So... Um, he goes much deeper than the surface issues of food and idols and their ceremonies. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, 
the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. All right, so these Corinthians are essentially asking Paul a yes or a no question. And he refuses to give them only what they want. And he, instead, he tells them what they really needed to hear. He goes to the root of the problem. He doesn't stay up at the shallows of what to eat or what not to eat. He goes to the deeper problem, to the sinful script that's playing itself out in their theater, starring idols, a new Christian converts from pagan idol worship, food that had been sacrificed to these idols. Paul goes to a deeper problem than just what stays on the surface. He strikes at a most relevant topic for Christians of any time, not least of whom us 21st century Americans, and that is the root of brotherly love and Christian liberty. That we know who our God is, and that such a knowledge would inform and prescribe just how we are as Christians to live. This this knowledge of who God is and our knowledge of our rights and our Christian liberty would inform and prescribe how we are to live. So I mentioned a quote last week, but I want to say it again and go something like this. The gospel isn't the ABCs of salvation. Rather, it is the A to Z of the Christian life. And I want you to hear that because because the mindset or the worldview of some of these Corinthians and consequently what they were doing, remember what we believe determines what we do. So the mindset, the worldview of these Corinthians um, and what they were consequently doing is exactly what many of us tend to believe and do. Now, we don't deal with it on the level of idols and idol idol worshippers and food, but we are dealing with the same problem, many, that, that these Corinthians were dealing with. And we think we say things like this. I'm sure glad I'm going to heaven when I die. Thanks, God. I'll see you when I get there. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you then. We'll have plenty of time to catch up. We think, great, now that I'm saved, now that I got that squared away, I, I'm going to finish doing what I want to do. I'm going to complete my bucket list. I've paid my dues, and now I can live my life and have my fun. And so because Paul had such great love for these believers, he cuts them he cuts them right to the heart using raw and brazen language. Like Paul so often does, if you're familiar with his writings, you know that so often he uses pretty harsh language. Excuse me, this is messing up. And so um, he's, he's trying to offend these Christians, and he's trying to do that for a reason, for a purpose, and that reason is to provoke them to love and good works. So he's trying to offend them, but he's trying to offend them for good reason, to provoke them to love and to good works. All right, so let's look at verse 1 through 3 a little bit closer. I'm going to read that. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, right from the start of the chapter, you can smell these Corinthians' pride. These guys are flaunting their knowledge. If you, they're, they're doing, if you picture a child or a horde of children who's, who's just been handed a balloon sword, you know, clowns making a sword, and he hands it. This is what these Corinthians are doing. They're, they're running around with their knowledge, flaunting their little balloon swords. He says, this knowledge that all of us possess puffs up. In other words, you become full of yourself. It makes you all fluff and no substance. This is the kind of knowledge that stupid and ignorant people have. We've seen them on TV. We hear them we hear them, uh, you know, on the radio. They have knowledge, but they're not smart people. They have knowledge, but they're not intelligent people. 
this is the kind of knowledge that many of our universities, public schools, and unfortunately even many pastors and parents export to the next generation, a knowledge that puffs up. And if this is the kind of knowledge that you have, Paul says you don't yet know as you ought to know. You don't yet know as you ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God, and and this is where true knowledge begins. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul is certainly not in any way opposed to knowledge. He's not implying that it isn't important. Okay? He's not implying that knowledge is bad or not important. He is, um, he is he's not railing against that. If we are faithful, Bible-believing Christians, we don't need to be afraid of knowledge. Okay? We do not need to be afraid of knowledge. We don't need to have one of those squinty-eyed views at knowledge. Knowledge? I have faith. You got your knowledge? No. We don't need to be afraid, and we don't need to be um, squinty-eyed about it. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.22 says, The fool hates knowledge. Now, compare and contrast that with many, many Christians who hate knowledge. The fool hates knowledge, the Bible says. Proverbs 2.6 says, The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then Peter tells us to make every effort to supplement our faith with knowledge. To make every effort to supplement our faith with knowledge. And so these scriptures establish it as a settled principle that knowledge is itself good. And yet, if the fear of the Lord is not the foundation, this good gift becomes empty and useless in wicked men. Let me say that again. Knowledge is itself good. But if the fear of the Lord is not the foundation, this good gift this good gift becomes empty and useless in wicked men. As a matter of fact, we see this over and over again in creation. God's good gifts becoming empty and useless or even perverted or used as weapons. Gifts such as sex, alcohol, food, authority, wealth. That's just a few. We can see these are good gifts from God and yet so much of the time we see these good gifts abused or perverted or even used as weapons against other people. Thankfully, our misuse, our misuse doesn't invalidate or even contaminate God's good gifts. Our misuse only condemns us. Our misuse, our perversion of one of God's good gifts does not contaminate the gift. It contaminates us. I mean, this is an easy one to think about when we think about sex. I don't think any of us in here would argue that sex is a bad thing. And yet, we, we all have um, maybe experiences or we know of people who have had horrible experiences regarding sex, regarding sexual immorality. Sex is a good gift that is perverted or misused when it's not on a foundation of love and of the fear of the Lord. And so these people are immoral, not the gift. It would be ungrateful for us to reject God's gift or even to shy away from them simply because they might be misused. That, that would be ingratitude. That would be ingratitude. Rather, we should seek to employ and to enjoy God's gifts Rightly, And to do that, we must be planted firmly upon the foundation that is love. We must be planted firmly on the foundation that is love. If love is not the true seasoning, God's gifts will be found wanting and tasteless. If, if love is not the true seasoning, God's gifts will be found wanting and 
tasteless. And that is exactly what we see here. This knowledge, lacking love, is wanting and tasteless. When you combine knowledge with ungodliness, you get arrogance, haughtiness, and pride. And, and that is what Paul is railing against. That is what Paul is condemning. When you have knowledge, but you don't have love, you're left with nothing but a condescending attitude that recklessly fires off those looks. That recklessly fires off those, those comments or those jabs, those criticisms or those complaints. You're left with a worldview you're left with a worldview when knowledge is lacking love. You're left with a worldview that elevates you in your rights to the highest priority. When knowledge is lacking love, you, you're, you have a worldview that elevates you and your rights to the highest priority. We talked about this last week when we talked about worship. These so-called Christians were so full of themselves with doing whatever they wanted to do, they were all but saying the words, worship me. They were so puffed up with their pride, they were carelessly wounding their brothers around them, whether they knew it or not. And that's an important point to to, um, be aware of. Whether they knew it or not, which they obviously knew it, Think about it in our lives. Whether we know it or not, it's still a problem. This is why we need to be considerate. We need to be considerate. We need to consider one another. So don't think he doesn't mean to, to offend such pride-puffed people. Of course he does. He means, to, he means for the truth to puncture their inflated egos so they would come back down to reality. So we come back down to community. It's so easy for us to miss in our politically correct, avoid awkwardness at all cost culture. Paul essentially calls these guys stupid and ignorant, and we need to take note. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes that is the kind of surgical precision that love demands. In the Proverbs, there's this, there's this, these two verses lump right on top of each other. And the, and the first one says, uh, don't, answer the f- don't answer the fool lest he be wise in his own eyes. And the very next verse says, answer the fool lest he be wise in his own eyes. I, I, I messed it up. But anyway, they're right next, ne- right next door to each other. And, and it says, it looks like almost like a contradiction. It says, don't answer the fool Oh, that's what it is. Don't answer the fool lest you become like him. And the next one is, answer the fool lest he becomes wise in his own eyes. Don't answer the fool, answer the fool. Right on top of each other. And so sometimes, sometimes love demands surgical precision that says, this is stupid. This is ignorant. Not all the time, but but sometimes. And I'll tell you why. I know there's some, you guys are looking at me squinty-eyed. I'll tell you why. Because love builds up. You say, well, that defeats what you just said. No, listen. Love builds up. Jesus, um, well, hold on. If, we, if we're genuine in our love for others, that means we're not to be sketchy builders. We're not to be sketchy builders. We've, we've probably all met those kind of contractors, the kind that you um, hire because they're cheap, but then you can't leave them because you know that if you do, you're going to get a bad job. They're going to start cutting corners the moment you turn around. Yeah, that's not what we're supposed to be. And love builds up. And so what that means is, is that we're to be honest, master craftsmen who refuse to cheat. Jesus tells a parable that we should keep in mind here. It's not really about this per se, but it's a parable that is relevant to what we're talking about. And the parable is of two men who each build houses. One builds on sand and the other builds on a sure foundation. Love builds up, but it does not just build anywhere. Okay? This is why this is why I said what I said. Because love builds up, but it doesn't just build up anywhere. It builds on a foundation. It builds on bedrock. And this is why at times love building demands we first do some demolition, do some deconstruction. I'm 
right now I'm working on a 16-foot camper that me and my wife lived in for a year while we were getting our house ready. And so we sold it in the process of building that house, and we told the guy, you know, if you ever want to sell it, give us the first chance. And so he wanted to sell it, so he gave us the first chance. So we got it back, and uh, it's in rough condition. It was in rough condition when we got it, but it's in even worse condition now. The roof is leaking, and there's water damage all over on the inside. And so if I'm going to build this thing up right, would, would, would that mean just going there with buckets of paint and wallpaper and, and go to town? No. No. If I'm going to do this right, I've got to remove the things that are rotten and useless and in the way. I've got, to, I've got to fix the problem, remove what is rotten, what is useless, and what is in the way. And then I need to build up. Do you understand, do you understand what I'm saying? We, we've sometimes... We've got to do some demolition, some deconstruction before we can start the building process. And this is what Paul is doing here. These guys are so proud and so arrogant. He cuts them, he cuts them right off at the knees. He brings them back down to reality. And he says, I'm doing this because I love you. Because I love these people that you're hurting. Sometimes we need to take that into consideration. I know that's hard in our culture. I know it. But sometimes hard things are worth doing, right? So don't, don't simply take my word for it, by the way. Um, the Bible, your Bible teaches you this. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that there is a time to break down and a time to build up. And then later on it says God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And I know it doesn't always seem that way, but our breaking down times are beautiful. But God says he's made everything beautiful in their time. If, if anyone imagines, he knows something. Paul isn't saying that we should go around in a constant state of uncertainty. He isn't implying that we should all become uh, postmodern relativists. These postmodern relativists, they say things like, I know for certain, you can't know anything for certain. Do you know that? Yes, I know that. That's the only thing we can know for certain. We can't know anything for certain. Oh, okay, that doesn't make any sense. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying... You can't have certainty about things. He's saying, he, he's railing against those guys who are standing on nothing more than empty notions. He's, standing, he's railing against the guys who are standing on nothing more than their own vain imaginations instead of upon the bedrock revelation from God, both in Scripture and in nature. In Scripture and in nature. He goes on, but if anyone loves God, A relationship with God is the precursor to true knowledge. A relationship with God is the precursor to true knowledge. Now, let me just say right there, that doesn't mean that if you're not a Christian, you can't be a good brain surgeon. Of course you can. There are lots of good brain surgeons who are not Christian. But what it does mean is that if you're not a Christian, the Bible calls you a fool, no matter how good you are at brain surgery. Okay? The Bible says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. If you're not a Christian, the Bible says you're a fool. Okay? So, if anyone loves, true knowledge begins with a relationship with God. And why is this? The answer is um, in verse 6, is that there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. One God, the Father, from whom are all things. And as we already saw from Proverbs, this includes knowledge. Knowledge is from God. And by the way, he gives knowledge by, by what we know as common grace to unbelievers all the time. The technology we're using this morning, your iPhone that you're probably going to be getting on right after church if you're not on it right now, is... It's a beautiful gift from God, from a man who did not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. He goes on and says, for, and for whom we exist, for God, for whom we exist. This means not just that we exist to serve God. It means we exist because of God. You are here today. You are here on this planet because of God. For Him. Because of Him. 
you're here for him, like to serve him. Okay, that's true too. But what, what I believe Paul is saying here is you exist because of God. You are here on this planet because of God. You did not choose to be born. Do you know that you're a lottery winner in this room? There were a couple million other people in that drawing, and each of you guys are one in a million. Right? It's not so cheesy, but when you think about it, do the math. Your lottery winner's here. You didn't choose that. God put you here. You're not, and, and further, you're not keeping your little heart beating that's fueled by things like coffee and donuts, go figure. Today, that will pump 7,200 liters of blood through your body. And guess what? You're not doing that. You're not doing that. God's doing that. And so if we love God, we are known by God. And since we are known by God, we are not able to remain upright and stiffened by pride. Let me say that again. When we are known by God, we're not able to be to remain upright and stiffened by pride. To be searched and to be known by God is to be seen naked. To be seen bare as we truly are with no illusions, with no pretense. Fragile, weak, poor, rebellious, and sinful. To know, to love God, to be known by God is to have all of your pride erased and to become a new creature. A new creature. Verse, let's go on to verse 4 now. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Okay, so Paul rebukes these proud Corinthians and now he confirms their argument is actually a sound argument. He cuts them down at the knees. He brings them back down to reality. He brings them back down to community. And then he says, by the way, your argument is correct. You're right. Idols are vain imaginations concocted by ignorant men, and therefore whatever has to do with them or their ceremonies are nothing. They're they're nothing more than silly, vain charades because there is only one God. Now, the point that we need to take from that is being right isn't the bottom line. Being right is not the only thing to consider when we find ourselves in conflict with others. No doubt, no doubt being right is important. We, we should all invest due diligence to come to correct conclusions. That is good. But if that is all we have in view, we have utterly missed the point. If all we have in view are correct conclusions, we've missed the point. And that is to love. So don't forget that Paul's beautiful prose on love is is coming just a few chapters away. And there's no doubt in Paul's mind as he's writing these words now. Verses 5 through 7. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods gods, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we, uh, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. One God. One God. In the Old Testament, the foundational confession is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It's known as the Shema, or Shema Israel. Hear or hear, O Israel. And Jesus himself in Mark 12, 
29 refers to this as the most important. It be, it's the most, it's what is the introduction to love the Lord your God and love the neighbor as yourself. Those two uh, are part of the Shema, but there's the first part that maybe we're not as familiar with, but in the Old Testament, it was the foundational uh, doctrine, foundational confession, and and all Jewish people in that day would have known this well. It, and they would have probably had it memorized, and it would have sounded something like this. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul here is echoing that doctrine. He's echoing that confession in verse 6. And he's confirming the argument that an idol is nothing. There is only one true God. But he says not everybody knows this. Um, Some of these Christians, because they had been former pagan idol worshippers, that means they were not from Jewish backgrounds, they, they were a little bit shaky on this doctrine. Apparently, they were still under the assumption that there was something real going on in these ceremonies because these false gods were themselves something real. They thought the food offered to idols ceremony was something real, and so don't do it because they thought these idols were something real. Now, later in chapter 10, Paul talks about how these pagan sacrifices were really to demons, he says. And this may seem confusing, but it doesn't really contradict what he's saying here in chapter 8, that an idol has no real existence. And the reason that Paul could say, eat the food, don't eat the food, who cares, an idol is nothing, and at the same time say these pagans are sacrificing to demons, stay away, is because demons are not deities. Demons are real. They're real. You don't believe me. Just wait. Just live in this world long enough. They're real, but they're not deities. They're not gods. There is only one God, and so these pagans could offer all the sacrifices they wanted, but it was not going to benefit them at all. Okay, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. If we believe there's a river God who makes the river flow that we need to, you know, have all of our water survive, and, and then when the river stops flowing, well, the conclusion we're going to come to is that river God must be angry, and so what do we do? We try and make that river God happy again so our river flows. And so these, these pagan idol worshipers converted to Christianity not really completely clear on this whole idea of there is one God, apparently. And so they thought, don't, don't offer sacrifices to the river God. Offer sacrifice to our God. The point was, there is no river God. Our God is the river God. Our God is the God of everything. So when I eat the food that's offered to the river God, it's not going to make the river flow because there's no river God. And so that, that's kind of what Paul is saying here. It's not going to benefit them in the way they want, because there is only one God. It's not going to do what they want it to do. All right, verses 8 through 13. This is the rest of the chapter, so hang with me. Here we go. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And remember that verse. Keep that verse in your mind. That is a really important verse. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sitting against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Do you? Catch that sin against your brother, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat bacon again. I will never eat meat 
again. That thing that I love so much, I'll never touch it again, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay. It isn't what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Jesus teaches it is what comes out of your heart. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person. It is what comes out of your heart. Eat the food, don't eat the food. The food itself, this is the point, the food itself does not, cannot change God's perception of you. The food itself, oh man, I would like that guy, but he just ate bacon and I don't think that's a good idea. No, the food itself cannot, will not change God's perception of you. You certainly have the right to eat and you certainly have the right to refrain for conscious sake. In the South, one of the big places we see this played out is with alcohol. You know, a lot of people grow up with the assumption, at least who grow up in like, you know, hardcore churches, grow up with the assumption that to drink alcohol, to touch it is a sin. And did you know that actually the Bible doesn't say anything of the sort? And the Bible says, don't be drunk. And so the point is, it's not what goes into our mouth that defiles us. It's what comes out of our heart. Now, here, there's another really relevant, uh, great deal of relevance that we can derive from this right now in our culture. I don't know if you have noticed, but food fads have become all the rage. Uh, you know, there's comedians are noticing and they're making just hilarious jokes about it. You know, they're, they're saying things like, these things are plaguing rich white people in America. It's horrible. You know, and minority comedians are like, yeah, we don't for some reason, nobody, nobody across the tracks is getting these problems. Take what you want from that. I don't know if it's, you know, maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know. But you have, the point is this, though. You have whole movements of Christians who are, who are being consumed with debates about, they're consumed with the with debates about the morality. Now, Remember, I want to just make sure you understand the precursor to this is you have the right to eat or not eat. That is on you. You have the right. It is all good what you choose to do. But here's what the problem becomes. There are, there are movements of Christians who are debating the morality, the morality of things like GMOs, gluten, sugar, salt, alcohol, organic, non-organic, local, processed and dyed foods. You have the right to eat whatever you'd like or not eat whatever you'd like. But the, where the problem starts to run in is when we start to have a debate about the morality of these things, about the lawfulness of these things. So Paul puts the nonsense of food legalness to rest right here, and he says this, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. You are no less of a Christian if you buy cheap beer and Velveeta than if you buy your organic milk and, you know, your low-sodium stuff or whatever. You're, you're not a, a worse Christian if you eat your hormone if you drink your hormone-filled milk versus the organic milk, okay, you're not sinning by doing that. That's a real thing. If you guys don't believe me, just wait. I promise you, you'll, you'll hear the debate. They'll come around. Unfortunately, many Christians don't take their Bibles nearly as serious as they ought to. And they assume that if the writers of Scripture would have only known about Monsanto and GMOs and processed foods, surely they would have told us not to eat not to eat that. But, but if you think about it, when we do this, when we do that, we are inserting ourselves as the authority. Our opinions and our so-called knowledge becomes the standard that we impose on the people around us. And just like these Corinthians were doing, we start to jab. We start to offend our brothers because there is a lack 
of love because there was a lack of foundation. So just so before we move off this particular issue, I want you to know what the Bible does say about food restrictions for Christians. Food restrictions, there's one thing the Bible says about food restrictions for Christians. You know what it is? Don't be a glutton. Don't be a glutton. Don't be a glutton. Eat your bacon, eat your Velveeta, drink your non-organic hormone-filled milk and your cheap beer. It isn't what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. It's what comes out of your heart. And what this means is that these morality food police should worry more about pride and condescension coming from their mouth than the GMOs or the gluten or whatever it is they're worried about going in. When we want to start to fence off the table of the Lord because we say, you know, you're less of a Christian because you're eating that stuff, there's a problem. We need to worry about the things that are coming out of our hearts more than the things that are going into our mouths or other people's mouths. Okay? So moving right along. By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, the sinning against your brothers. You see, these weak Christians would see their brothers who knew idols were nothing eating in the temple. These, they would see, weak Christians would see their brothers who knew the Shema, who knew there's one God. Idols are nothing. And, and they not knowing as well as they should know, those weak Christians, that there was only one God, they would fall back into idolatry merely by following the example of those Christians. They would say, oh, they're eating there. It must be, I guess we should continue to offer the river God. And they'll fall back into idolatry. Now the more mature Christians, knowing what's going on, are basically saying, that's not my problem. Hey, I know the Shema. I can do this. There's nothing wrong with this. If they are doing that, that's not my problem. I have the right to keep doing what I'm doing. I have the right. And so, let me just say, if we are asking, if we are asking these questions, the question like this, do I have the right to, do I have the right to get a tattoo? Is that a sin? Do I have the right to smoke? Do I have the right to drink? Do I have the right to whatever it may be for you or for your kids? Or when you were a kid? Do I have the right to, or is it a sin to whatever? Let me tell you, you're asking the wrong questions. You're asking the wrong questions. If if all we're concerned about is what we personally have the right or the freedom to do, then we are entirely missing The point, and the point is Christ. The point is love. The point is the gospel. The point is grace. So when your kid asks you that, do I have the right to, is it sin to just say, how is that going to glorify Christ? How is that going to magnify the gospel? How is that going to glorify God's grace in your life? How is that going to love the people that you're in community with? And when you can answer all of those questions, Go for it. Go for it. What this means is that our aim must be to proclaim in the totality of our lives Christ and his gospel. This is how we love. This is what it is to be a Christian, to, to be one who sees and, it's, and it's, excuse me, and ascribed ultimate value and worth to God beyond and at the expense of everything else in our life. Everything else in our life. Family, spouse, children, parents, friends, job, wealth, sex, hobbies, food, drink. The list goes on and on. If God is most worthy, that all the other things fall by the wayside. Therefore, 
if God is seen as most worthy of our complete devotion, and not just a weekend hobby or some cosmic insurance policy, what this means is he is the one we look to to determine the aim of our life. He's the one we look to to determine our mission. So in other words, he becomes our Lord. Remember, we're talking about the totality of our lives. We're talking about front to back, our life, because we're talking about love. Love must not be cut in half. In other words, you guys, you can't love your wife half of the time. Or parents, you can't love your kids half of the time. If you say, I love them half of the time, guess what? You don't love them at all. Love must be unabridged or else it isn't love. Modest love amounts to indifference. Modest love is indifference. You have to see that. Love is complete and total devotion. Complete and total devotion. Now, I want you to imagine a husband and a wife, newly married, and the wife wants to be a good, godly wife. She turns to her husband and says, Dear, I want you to know that I'm going to follow you in every decision that you make. In our marriage, you are going to have the final say on all the important decisions. Good wife, right? The husband's thinking that to himself too. He's like, wow, that, that was quicker and easier than I thought it would be. And the wife continues. And of course, I'll be sure to let you know, dear, whenever one of those decisions comes up. So the husband ends up picking the cereal and the chips. That's, that's his job. You pick the cereal. That's a big aisle, babe, so go ahead. Get to it. Cereal and chips. I'll submit to you. And my wife, I was telling her about this, and my wife says, I don't know, I think you should change the analogy. I said, why? Because I, I don't even think I would like you to pick the cereal. I'm like, oh, come on. This, this, I know it seems funny to us, but unfortunately, this is the dominating attitude of many in the church. And we say, if Jesus is Lord, when, when we say Jesus is Lord, and then we determine which parts he gets he gets to be in charge of. We say, Jesus, you're Lord. And then we say, you can have this and this. Well, no. Jesus is not Lord. No, you're not being a submissive wife if he gets to pick the cereal and the chips. We, we say, we love you, God, and then we give him 10%. Now, Conway hit on it a little bit when we took up the offering. This isn't just about money. It is about money. Jesus said money is a big deal. He says, Money, where your treasure is, there your heart is. So money is kind of like the biggest thermometer we have. But it's not just about money. It's about our time. It's about our, the totality of our lives. It's about your home you live in. How is that serving others? Okay, so we're talking about the whole picture here. So we say, we love you, God. Here's what you get to be in charge of. You get to be in charge of this 10% of my money, and you can be, get to be in charge of this day of the week, and um, this 30 minutes in the morning, or whatever. Or we, we love you, God. We love you, God. Um, you, can, you, can have, you can have this half. No. Modest love is indifference. It's not how it works because he is a jealous master and he is a jealous lover. When you proclaim Jesus is Lord, you are laying down your rights and you're taking up your Christian liberty. And what this means is that it is that you are free from indifference. Your Christian liberty does not mean I get to go to the temple and eat the food. Your Christian liberty means you're free from indifference. I get to love that guy. I get to love that God. This means freedom from indifference, freedom from your old desires, your old affections, and a freedom to do whatever your new heart should please. Whatever your new heart should please, you can do it. That's a safe one. And and that's because your new heart, freedom is to, to be able to finally love 
In Acts, there's a story of a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who sell some land and they give the proceeds to the church, except they lie about how much they keep back for themselves. So they put the money in the offering, and Peter says to them, it was your land. You could have done it with it, whatever you wanted to do. But you lied about what you kept back. You tried to hide it from your family, from your church, and from your God. And do you know what happened? Ananias and Sapphira, New Testament Christians, not under law Christians, under grace Christians, who did not take their life within the community, within the church, seriously, who did not take God's word seriously, fell down and died in front of Peter. They fell down and died. The Bible says they breathed their last, and the youth group buried them. Youth group, got a service project. We need you to bury these guys. And the Bible says fear fell upon the congregation. Now, if that does not make you at least a little bit afraid this morning, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. If that does, this story should frankly terrify some of us today. It should terrify some of us. Because our God is the same God, and guess what? His rules are the same. His, his, the structure of his community is the same. His people are the same. Nothing's changed. That should be a terrifying reality for some of us. These Corinthians, just like Ananias and Sapphira, who did not care how their actions affected their brothers and their sisters around them, were not just being rude or inconsiderate. They weren't just being rude or being inconsiderate. They were being rude and they were being inconsiderate, but that's not all they were being. Paul says they not only were sinning against their brothers, they were sinning against Christ. Christ himself. Conway this morning in Bible study said, I wonder what our prayers would look like if we were praying them face to face in front of God. Like, I mean, he's standing. If I'm Jesus up here and I say, come, come on up and pray. Brian, uh, is your prayer, I mean, you're going to, that's going to be terrifying. One, your prayer is probably going to look a little bit different than the one you just like said half asleep last night before you went to bed, right? I think so. And this is what Paul says. He says, when these, when these guys aren't taking community seriously, when you, Christ Fellowship, do not take community, your church, God's word, seriously, you're not just hurting and sinning against the people around you. You're sinning against Christ himself, Paul says. <gasps> That's heavy. If you don't feel the weight of that this morning, check your pulse, please. So when we love God, we become new creatures. When we, uh, loving our neighbor at that point is, is not just a good idea. Well, yeah, I could see that's a good idea. Loving our neighbor at that point becomes our law. It becomes our law. And I don't mean law like, you know, this is the speed limit. I mean law like gravity is our law, like hunger is our law. And, and it, I don't mean to say that because it's our law, because because it's uh, because it's second nature that it's easy. It's not easy. Sometimes gravity hurts. Sometimes hunger is uncomfortable. But but this is the promise that we have. The promise is you will always know what to do. Love. You will always know instinctively you are to love. It may not always be easy to figure out what that means in the particular situation, but you will always know instinctively you must love. You must love. That confused former idol worshiper who's still under the assumption that if you eat the meat from the idol's temple, you're somehow contaminated, you will love that guy enough to not just jab him with empty theology, just jab him with empty doctrines. Rather... You will embrace him with full, love-saturated, rights-sacrificing, money-where-your-mouth-is theology. 
you'll embrace him. And for what? Just for the sake of that guy? No. For way more than just that guy. For the sake of Christ and for the sake of his gospel. And so, this morning as we close, this is the question I have for you. The questions. Are you willing to give up your reputation this morning for the sake of Christ and his gospel? Are you willing to give up your bucket list full of shallow and temporal pleasures for the sake of Christ and his gospel? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying give up adventure. I'm saying give up your shallow, temporal bucket list. Are you willing to give up your money and your possessions for the sake of Christ and his gospel? Are you willing to give up your comfort, willing to find yourself in awkward, difficult, confrontational situations for the sake of Christ and his gospel. You see, you may have the right to keep your reputation guarded. You may have the right to do, to do everything on that shallow bucket list. You may have the right to keep all of your money and to build your material empire. You may have the right to avoid awkward situations, to avoid difficult and confrontational situations, just like those Corinthians had the right to eat whatever they wanted to eat. But oh, do your rights make lovely kindling for the fires of grace. Your rights make lovely kindling for the fires of grace. Are you willing today to let them burn? To let them go for the sake of Christ and his gospel in this community? I hope you are. I really want you to be, as I look out at our congregation, as I look at our church, I, I see a dark room and I hear little movements, kind of like now, and I can see like banging two flint rocks together all over this room. The sparks of revival, I promise you, it's coming. I promise you, reformation is coming. I promise you, it's coming. And I don't want to miss it. And I hope you don't either. I pray the Holy Spirit would set your hearts on fire right now. Let that kindling of your rights burn up in the fires of grace. Lit by your Holy Spirit. I want him to set our church on fire today to transform us for the sake of Christ and his gospel. We stand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would spend us giving up our personal rights when we as a people, especially as Americans, have been so ingrained to fight and even to die in order to hoard our rights. Remind us, Father, of Christ, our example, who left his throne and came to earth to be spent for his brothers and sisters. Surely there are those here today who are being selfless in much of their lives. And surely there are those who are dangerously resembling Ananias and Sapphira and the Corinthians from our text. But no matter where each of us are on that spectrum, as long as we are breathing God, there is more to give. There is certainly more to do. So would you make us generous willing to spend our rights for Christ and His gospel, willing to spend our time and our money and our lives for the sake of Christ and His gospel. We know that we cannot do anything apart from Your Holy Spirit that powerfully works in us. And so we ask You to strengthen us and to stir us with Your Spirit, to give us wisdom and creativity and willingness to grow as we leave here today. We ask these things in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so like we've done for the last few weeks, we are going to sing the doxology. And as we do, I invite you to lift your hands. And even more than that, 
I want you to lift your eyes and to lift your hearts to your Lord and with passion sing well. And then I'm going to give you the charge and pronounce a blessing and then you'll be dismissed. And once you are dismissed, if you like prayers or have any questions, you are invited to come forward and the elders will be happy to pray and speak with you. So let us sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy The charge this week is this. Just do it. Stop worrying. Stop whining. Stop making excuses. Let go of your rights. Let go of any illusion of control that you may still cling to. And for the sake of Christ and his gospel planted firmly on the foundation of love and burning with grace, live the life you read about in your Bibles. Love your God and love your neighbors. And then if God grants you to wake up tomorrow morning, do it again and try and do it better. Amen? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in peace and harmony with one another, that together by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, world without end. Amen. Go in peace.